Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether it is physical or digital, whatever it may be, please turn your attention to Exodus, the second chapter, Exodus chapter 2. If you do not own a Bible, if you need one, if you know somebody who needs one, please, they're on the table back there, please take and give someone a copy of God's Word or for yourself if you need it. We are in Exodus, journeying our way through the book of Exodus. Uh Uh-oh. Somebody getting crazy in the parking lot. All right. It's a good reminder. We have a lot of children in our room. There's a lot of kids. And I know they get rambunctious, and I know that sometimes it can be hard to focus when the kids get a little rowdy. I want us all to remember a couple of things. One, those rowdy voices in our midst are our future. We are thankful to have them. If they get rowdy, you're welcome to step out with them and bring them back in because they're not going to learn unless you're teaching them. So if you see a mom or a dad who needs help with their young child, just help them as we train up young children as they learn how to sit in church and learn from God's word. Don't ever doubt that young ears are hearing God's word and God's word is working as they hear it. If they can understand words when you talk to them, they are hearing and understanding things in this room. And God promises his word will not return empty or void. Uh, so as a church, we'll just continue to grow as we train young children how to be in the room. And if it gets rowdy and rambunctious, we'll turn our attention to God's word more. We'll help out. Or you can go back and listen to it online if you need to. But uh, just remember, those children are a blessing. I'm thankful for every child in the room. Thankful for all of you. Exodus chapter 2. We are journeying through the book of Exodus, reminding you all it is written by Moses to every new generation of God's people. We are paying attention. This is our theme that we are paying attention to. How God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. We are focusing on that theme, looking for that as we journey through the book of Exodus. Certainly the deliverance of the ancient people of Israel. Uh, They are through lineage from God, through the Holy Spirit. They They are our spiritual ancestors. We are paying attention to how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. I want to make you aware, if you join us for the first time, or just to recap what we have learned so far. Through chapter 1, we have learned how Jacob's descendants, it says in verse 5, 70 persons. How Jacob's descendants came to, verse 7, fill the land. How they became, verse 9, too many and too mighty for the Egyptians. How a new king arose. In verse 8, how he afflicted them. Verse 11, with heavy burdens. How he, verse 13 and 14, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But how, despite all of this, they continued to grow strong. They continued to spread abroad the land. They were multiplying and being fruitful, which we have connected to the seed of the woman. This is the command of God that God's people would be fruitful and would multiply. And this is being seen now evident in the people of Israel as they are burdened and in bondage in Exodus, in Egypt. We have seen how a new king, verse 16 and verse 22 of chapter 1, a new king tried to eliminate them through male infanticide. Kill every newborn son 
as they are born, kill them. And the Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do that. And then he commands his own people, if the Hebrews have a son, toss it into the river and drown it. He is trying to eliminate the people of God through committing this heinous sin against God and against humanity. And it is in the midst of that male infanticide. There's nothing else to call it. There's nothing other than he was wholesale murdering newborn children into the river. There's nothing else to call it. In the middle of that, the author and I would say leading figure or character, if you will, in the book of Exodus is born. And in Exodus chapter 2, the narrative, the historical narrative, becomes an autobiographical historical narrative written about Moses, by Moses, used by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. We've talked about Moses being the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books that really are one book. And now as we get into chapter two, it becomes autobiographical. We have tried to work our way away from viewing the Bible as story. It's not a wrong word. It's not that it's a bad word. It's just that we want to take into consideration the fact that God's word is truth. It is factual. It is historical. And so we are reading historical narrative, not just a story. And now we are reading a historical autobiographical narrative. Would you read with me today? Exodus chapter 2, follow along in your Bible. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? 
they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to his son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you as we approach the preaching of your word. God, and I ask that you would give me the strength in my body and in my mind to communicate your word to the people gathered here. Father, I pray that you would speak to me as you speak through me. Father, I pray that we would understand and learn and see and be challenged by your word. Father, that it would convict us, that it would encourage us. Father, that we would see a God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word today, I pray that sinners will be humbled to repentance. I pray that holiness will be promoted among your people, and I pray that the Savior, Jesus Christ, will be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 2. On the screen, I have two other references. You can mark them if you want. You don't have to go to them today, but uh, Exodus chapter 2 finds excellent commentary in Acts chapter 7 and in Hebrews chapter 11. So those references are on the screen. If you picked up a copy of the Printed Village News, I also put them on the back as well. Uh, It's important for us to understand this principle. If you're a student of the Word, pay very close attention. Scripture interprets Scripture. We allow the Word of God to speak for itself. It is His Word. Many men write commentaries. I reference them. I'll reference one here in a little while. But Scripture interprets Scripture. And Scripture also provides most excellent commentary. No human author, enabled by the Holy Spirit through the study and interpretation of original texts and languages, no author is going to interpret what is being said in God's Word better than the author, God himself. And so Exodus finds excellent commentary. Exodus 2 specifically finds excellent commentary in Acts 7 and in Hebrews 11. It is all his word, and he wants us to see as his what he is doing. Titled this week's sermon simply, Moses. We're meeting this main character, the birth of Moses. If you have a Bible in front of you with subheadings, you probably see that above chapter 2. Moses is born. So dealing first with his birth in Egypt, it says in verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Would you flip your page over to chapter 6 really quickly? Exodus chapter 6, Moses provides us an outstanding genealogy of his life, where he comes from. And he starts with the sons of Reuben, verse 14, chapter 6. He goes on to the sons of Simeon, verse 15. And then he moves on to the sons of Levi. He is from the tribe of Levi. It says, a Levite man, a man of the house of Levi, took for himself a Levite woman. As we move down, we see these descendants come about. Read with uh, verse 16 on. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The son of Kohath, Amram, and Izhar. Now move down. Verse 20. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. We're not going to deal with all that is being going on there. Let's understand an ancient culture and an ancient time, and let's remove our minds from today's messed up perverseness. 
relations and relatives in ancient biblical times, it's something different than we would see as commonly accepted. It's something different even as we move on, like the law is not given yet. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. It does not mean that Jochebed is Amram's aunt, as you're all sitting here and thinking, this guy marry his aunt? What just happened? Let's move on. Takes Jochebed as his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron, Moses, The years of the life of Amram being 137. The reason I draw your attention to Exodus chapter 6, the lineage that Moses provides us reaffirms what we talked about a couple years ago, or a couple weeks ago, that a couple of hundred years have stemmed from Joseph and all of his descendants, you read in chapter 1 verse 5, to the time that the new king comes along and now even to the time of Moses. We see Levi living 137 years, Kohath his son 133 years, Amram, Moses' father, 137 years. So Levi going into Egypt with his clans, Kohath also being born to Levi prior to going into Egypt, we see Moses as three generations removed from all that generation, in verse uh, 7, chapter 8, all that generation died, verse 6. Hidden for three months. It says, a Levite man, a man from the house of Levi, took a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, there's nothing wrong with him, do you understand? There was no birth defect. There was no problem that could be visibly, physically seen. He's a fine child. The Bible says he's a handsome child. Acts chapter 7 tells us that God saw the child as beautiful. They see that there's nothing wrong, and so they hide him. Why? Because at the time that he's born, Pharaoh is ordering the death of every newborn son. It's not just firstborn son. That's later in the story of Exodus. This is every son that is born, Pharaoh is ordering the death of, and so they hide him for three months. Hidden for three months, they act to save their baby. This is fascinating. Maybe you I put this together for the first time this past week. Made a basket, put the baby in the basket, and where did they put the basket? Into the very river meant to kill him. She doesn't move him away from the water where Pharaoh has said, if a newborn son is born, throw that baby into the water. She puts him in a basket and she takes that basket and puts that basket into the very river that is meant to to kill him. Hebrews 11, verse 23. This is interesting to me. Moses' parents are in Hebrews 11. Just a show of hands. Anybody know what Hebrews 11 is? I say Hebrews 11. Do you know what is going on in Hebrews 11? If you do, put your hand up. Let's see how many people know what Hebrews 11 is. Okay, if you weren't sure, it's the hall of faith. All of those who by faith, who by faith, who by faith, says Moses' parents, by faith hid him for three months. It says, because they did not fear the king's edict. They put him in a basket covered in pitch, which is a tar-like substance, because they were not afraid of the king's edict. So by faith, they fearlessly disobey what is happening with the king. They're not supposed to throw their own child, but they take this basket and they're like, we're going to save his life because all they know is that the son's been born. He doesn't deserve to die. They make this basket, it says of the bulrushes. They cover it with this substance. We should note, this is not the first life to be spared in a tar-covered water-faring vessel. Original readers like 
generations after Moses, when he starts writing this and the people of Israel start reading it, they would have connected right away. This is not the first life spared through a tar-covered, water-faring vessel. The original Hebrew word here for basket is the word teva. It's used twice in the Bible, and the only other spot you will find it is in the account of Noah and the ark that he builds. That is a connection that the author, the Holy Spirit, wants us to see. God is preserving, God is sparing life, God is protecting life. One commentary writer suggests, the mother wouldn't have dared allow her daughter to watch the basket if she expected the boy to be murdered. Think about this, where there are plenty of parents in the room, plenty of children. If we're as hard as we can putting ourselves into this context, we cannot imagine what they're going through. They made this basket, they put it in the water, they send it up the river. Well, what would we logically conclude? Any Egyptian that finds that basket, the princess knew what she found. Any Egyptian that finds that basket, what are they doing with it? And here goes Moses' sister following the basket. Not a single person in this room would think, follow it and see what happens to it. If you're expecting that that child, so we see this faith coming out of Amram and Jochebed, follow and see what happens. You understand they didn't know that day that a savior had been born. They only knew their son deserved a chance to live. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. The whole narrative moves fairly quickly in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He's born. Three months go by. They put him into this basket. They send the basket up the river, and all of a sudden he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. The Bible says, found by Pharaoh's daughter. This is important, and we should take note of this. Remember that God is preserving life, and we often draw our own conclusions about how life will be spared, but we don't expect that those who are so closely connected to those who have given the order to execute life are going to be the ones that spare it found by Pharaoh's daughter, but the princess disobeys her dad. She does not submerge the basket. She does not kill the child. And you can see right in the text, she says, uh, open the basket, behold the child. The child was crying. In the middle of verse 6, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew precisely what she had found. She knew precisely what was going on. Someone is trying to save the life of this child. It's a good reminder for us. Human life has value, and we should not so quickly associate people. Uh, I, this happened, wow, if we look back in history, there was a period in time where we had a big problem with people of German descent because of what some Germans did to people. I can't believe that you would do that as a people. Not every German did that. We can look back in history at Christians. Look what Christians did in the Middle Ages when they would go into Jerusalem and by wholesale, they are crusading against a false religion. Sure, we could argue that point. What are they doing? They're committing a holy war, which we could contend was probably an unholy war. And they are in wholesale killing and causing death. But are all Christians doing that? Are, are we doing that? No, we're not. And so it's very important for us. I want to make sure that we're separating lines and not throwing a blanket in mass over people because of the actions of some and considering all. This woman was moved. Something was moved within her. Perhaps she's a mother who's wanted a child. 
Perhaps the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess, couldn't have children. Perhaps when she saw this baby, she thought in, in her religion, in her ways, the gods have given me a child. The Bible doesn't say all of these things. It doesn't talk about all of that. We have to purely read into the text, and that's very dangerous to do. Suffice it to say, she should have killed that child, and she did not. She finds him. According to Pharaoh, he should die, but she's not. Moses' sister Miriam, the Bible would tell us, is standing by. The book of Numbers tells us that Miriam is a very strong woman. Uh, she opposes Moses in the book of Numbers. Moses and Aaron both oppose Moses, and God says, have them come to the tent of meeting, and he talks with them because of their opposition to Moses as the man of God at that time. Moses is a, a strong, or Miriam is a strong girl. She's standing there, and this whole picture is so peculiar. Would you like me to go and fetch a nurse for him? She takes this child out, and here's this little Hebrew servant girl. Right? What, what, is, what is the sister of Moses to the princess of Egypt? I got this baby, this baby's crying, and this little girl says, would you like me to go and, and find a nurse? And Pharaoh's daughter is very common, a wet nurse, very common for someone to stand in and nurse a child, especially among royalty. Very common for this to happen. Go. So she goes, and who does Miriam get? Well, who better to care for a child than the child's mother? This is why people are like, oh, this is so made up. Well, maybe you could believe that this piece would be made up, but as we progress, there's no way man could make up this story. Go and fetch a nurse. So Miriam goes and fetches Jochebed, who comes back, and look at what Pharaoh's daughter says. Take this child, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. I will give you your wages. So now, Jochebed kind of gets the best of both worlds. I get to raise and nurture my son and the daughter of Pharaoh is going to pay me to do it. It's very important. In, in our culture, in our day, nursing children is a, a different... Nobody showed up today thinking I was going to talk about nursing children. <clears throat> it's a different topic for us. Like, mothers try to nurse children. Sometimes it's a very difficult process. Sometimes it's a smooth process. I, we have children in our home, so I'm familiar with this. She sends him off, and do you understand, in this day, this isn't like a few months this isn't even necessarily a year. This is potentially three or four, potentially possibly even five years that Jochebed has her son in her home raising him, nurturing him, caring for him. You're like, Pastor, what exactly is the point of all this? We're going to see Moses realize that he's not an Egyptian. The Bible shows us that picture. Why? Because through those formative years, and this is what a Sunday to talk about young children being in a for those formative years, he's in the arms of his mother. He's cared for by his mother. His brother Aaron is just three years older, so they got two young boys and an older sister in the home, and it's Amram and Jochebed and Aaron and Miriam and Moses in this house until it comes time to return him to Pharaoh's daughter. And we see Jochebed honor that. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Ain't a single one of us doing that. Not one of us. If, if Pharaoh's daughter gives us our child back, we're off to the nearest country, but we ain't staying here. This is my kid. He's saved. I'm out. Instead, she keeps him. When he had grown, she returns him to Pharaoh's daughter. I think it's very important that it says Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, and he became 
her son. You are mine. So when we see later on in this, exa- this same narrative, when we see later on that he comes to the daughters of Ruel in Midian, it says an Egyptian. So through those formative years, all of a sudden, now he's with the Egyptians and he becomes as an Egyptian. This is really important. I, I want you, if you're a note taker, I want you to write down, he became an Egyptian. It's super important to the whole narrative of Moses' life and to what happens in the Bible. So the king's daughter, who should have killed the boy, has compassion, spares his life, adopts him as her own, raises him. And did you notice what happened? Verse 10. She, Pharaoh's daughter. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Pharaoh's daughter's son, she, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. I looked this up. If you have a voice translating app on your phone, it's fun to do sometimes. I have one that translates English to Hebrew. You should use it. It's really fun to hear Hebrew words. If you look up Moses and you look up draw out, drawing out, drawn out, they they say that it sounds similar. It does. To the untrained ear, if you were to hear those two things said, you wouldn't be knowing if you were hearing a name or a statement. Very similar names. And it says that Pharaoh's daughter named him. Interestingly, she gave him a Hebrew name. He doesn't have an Egyptian name. We say Moses. In the Hebrew, they say Moshe. Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Acts 7, verse 22 informs us, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Acts 7, verse 22. Moses trained in all the wisdom as the Egyptians. You're like, that's great. Is this important? Yeah, I want you to track. I hope you're tracking with everything I'm sharing with you. I want you to track that he would have looked like an Egyptian. He was raised as an Egyptian. He would have spoken like an Egyptian. The dude is raised effectively as an Egyptian, skilled in all their wisdom, mighty in his words, mighty in his deeds. His mom is the princess to Pharaoh. He's in the court, as it were. Moses is not just some bum being raised by some hack of an Egyptian servant woman. He's at the king's court. He should have died at birth. So his survival from birth is miraculous. And we are right to think this is not the only deliverer who should have died at birth. I've heard this story somewhere else. The narrative moves. Exodus 2, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, I made little headings to keep myself focused. His birth in Egypt, two through, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. Chapter 2, 11 through 15, from prince to exile. From prince to exile. I made this little note. When you step without God, don't expect good results. From prince to exile. There's a leap in the narrative. We've talked about this through chapter 1. We see Joseph and his generation, they die and there's a new king. And it's not like one day, next day, it's several hundred years. Look with me at the leap that happens here. Chapter 2, verse 1. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that her child was fi- that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Okay? Let's do simple math. A man from the house of Levi and a Levite woman 
became husband and wife and had a child. And that process takes nine months. So nine months moves through verses one and two. Then she hid him for three months. In, in, in the end of verse two, hid him for three months. Then she puts him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. We only know at this point the baby is three months old. Then he goes and is nursed for what, maybe three or four or five years. And then all of a sudden we come to verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up. And everybody said, well, how old was Moses when he had grown up? Are we talking about a 12-year-old kid? Are we talking about a 20-year-old kid? This is where the Bible provides good narrative. Acts chapter 7 verse 23 tells us at this point, Verse 11, in the narrative we're about to view, at this point, Moses is at least 40 years old. Acts chapter 7, verse 23 says, and one day, Moses was 40 years old. So we can go 40 as a baseline. So from verse 1 of chapter 2 to verse 11, 40 years. One day when he had grown up. What is happening here? He went out to, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian, a Hebrew, one of his people. I hope you're starting to see why it's so important to understand how he was raised, what he would have looked like, how he would have been conducting himself, the business even at 40 years old, this guy probably had responsibilities in the kingdom of of Egypt with Pharaoh and responsible as Pharaoh's daughter's son. He saw an Egyptian Beating a Hebrew, verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Read it again with me. Let's read it again really slow together. Look at it. He looked this way and that, and seeing No one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Two things. One, something is stirring in the life of Moses. What does he see? He goes out and views his people and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Something stirs in him. What stirred is not necessarily bad. What he did with what stirred is heinous. Seeing no one. How many times in the recess of your life do you stop and take a look around and not see a soul and do precisely the thing you know you should not do? A murder has always been wrong. The death of man at the hand of man, planned by the mind of man, it has never been condoned. And Moses is like, I... And kills the guy. And then what? Where are you, Adam? I heard you, Lord, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What did Moses just do? Moses stepped without God to deliver his people, and in doing so, he sinned. What's the lesson for us before we ever come to application? Plenty of people sinning, thinking they're doing stuff for God. Plenty of people committing sin, thinking they are doing something good for the Lord. Man, I pray I'm not. 
I hope that sin is a problem for you. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Do you know what Moses would write later on? In Numbers, actually, the 32nd chapter, the 13th verse. Be sure your sin will find you out. What is happening here? Acts 7 says he hoped, 7 verse 25, he hoped his brothers would see, quote, Stephen literally says he hoped that his brothers would see that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He hoped, if I strike down this Egyptian who's beating my Hebrew brother, they'll rally to me and I can save them. What has stirred is not bad. What he has done in light of what is stirred is sin. Acts 7.23 says this has something to do with, Acts 7.23 says, it came into his heart. We've got to be careful of our heart. God's word tells us that our heart is wicked and desperately sick. We have to be careful about what comes into our heart, that we hone it, that we train it, that we take the thoughts of it captive to the obedience of Christ. Hebrews 11.24. Why don't you turn to that with me? 11.24 through 26. I want you to see it. I was going to paraphrase it, but I want you guys, I want you to see it in the word. Hebrews 11, toward the back of the Bible, Hebrews 11, verse 24. We're going to be right back in Exodus, so don't lose your spot. Something came into his heart, something stirs within him, and he attempts to deliver his Hebrew brother, but he kills a guy. What is going on here? Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, remember he's about 40, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Did you catch that? Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. He acknowledged who he was, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to live the life that he was living. He refused that and chose to be called. Refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he will be who he is, a Hebrew. I'm not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. I am like these slaves. I am like one of them. Look what it says. Choosing, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Everyone in the room taking notes should circle it and underline it and highlight it and commit it to memory. Christian, we are suffering people. Life is not good for us. People hate our God and they hate us because of our God. We are sufferers. We are exiles. Moses choosing, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than what? Than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Look what it says. He considered the reproach of Christ. What that means? The shame. The shame. Oh, you're a Christian. No one wants to come over. No one wants to talk with you. No one wants to hear from you. No one wants to listen at all to what you have to say because you're a lunatic Christian. That's the reproach of Christ. And Moses, in the king's court, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
considered, I love the wording. Are you paying attention? He considered the reproach of Christ. You're like, pastor, wait a second. Christ isn't born yet. Right. And every single expectation of the Old Testament and every person we read about acting godly, acting in faith, every single expectation of the Old Testament is looking forward to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses may not have been able to articulate that from a virgin will come a savior who will save his people from their sins. But he knew there was something coming farther down the road. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. I just, man, I, we're not even to application yet. Have you considered the reproach of Christ better and greater than the wealth and treasures of this world? Do you understand the one for one is Egypt to the world? We're in bondage in the world. And Moses said, no, I will not be in bondage to this. I choose to be mistreated with the people of God, who he was already. He's born a Hebrew. Pharaoh's daughter knew this is one of the Hebrews. He was never an Egyptian. He was living a lie. I wonder how many people in the room are like, oh boy, I remember this in my life. I remember the lie that I was living. I remember the ways that I was raised and the things that I was taught and the things that I knew to be fundamentally true because God's word is truth. And I remember saying, I'll take this on, I'll take this on, I'm not this, but I'm going to live this way. And the day came where you had to throw that off because you were rejecting the work of God in your life. Moses casts off the Egyptian, puts it away. This should remind us of something. The point is this, Moses condescended from his princely status, taking the form of a slave to save them. Want it again so you can write it down? It's an important statement. Moses condescended, means he rejected what was to be something inferior. Moses condescended from his princely status taking the form of a slave to save them. Moses thought the Hebrews would understand and rally to him as their savior. Acts tells us he thought they will, they will see that God is giving them salvation at my hand. But what happens? They did not understand. And when he struck this death blow to this Egyptian, and he saw that no one was looking, and he hid him in the sand, someone was looking. Or someone was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to call out sin as it always will be called out. Look what happens. After the Egyptian, he sees two Hebrews quarreling. So he steps in again, right? This same thing welling up inside of him. Mistreatment. I'm going to do something about it. So he steps in there. Brothers, what are you doing? Don't quarrel with one another. You're both Hebrews. And look what happens. He's rejected. Verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? He's rejected. He's convicted. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Wait a second, there was nobody around. Nobody saw that happen. Whoa. He's rejected as, as a, a, a deliverer of the Hebrews. Do you, who made you a prince? He's convicted. Do you mean to kill me too? 
He's wanted. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. You get out there. You find that miscreant Hebrew son of my daughter and you bring him here. I want him dead. He's wanted. He's rejected. He's convicted. He's wanted. Exodus 2, 14 and 7, 29 says the same thing. Becomes an exile. Look, Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. But Moses fled, rejected, convicted, wanted, afraid. He becomes a fugitive on the run. Now into 16. If you're following along, Moses is born. He goes from prince to exile. And now he's going to go from exile to hero in 11 short verses. How can this be? How can this murdering fugitive all of a sudden become a hero and be someone that God is going to use. Write this down. The purpose of the Lord will endure. You're not going to sin your way out of being used by God in the way that he wants to use you. Moses is suffering a judgment in his life because he stepped without God. He made a decision on his own and killed a man. And now he's paying the consequence for that. We'll never know what was going to happen, but one thing we know, if the purpose of the Lord stands, which it says in the Psalms, if the purpose of the Lord stands, Moses was always going to be the deliverer here to the people of Israel in Egypt. But now trouble has come upon him. Why? Because he took things into his own hands. Remember what happened back in chapter 1 with Pharaoh in Egypt? There's too many of them. Come, let us be wise in our own eyes and deal with them shrewdly. Wisdom in your own eyes is a fast track to ruin. He flees, he ends up in Midian. We don't know a whole lot of what happens here when he ends up with Midian. We have a very short encounter with him and the daughters of the priest of Midian. His name is uh, pronounced actually Reuel, but that's really hard to say, so we're going to run with Reuel. <clears throat> Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. This is important. Everything's important. All the details matter. Midianites. Show of hands if you know where the people of Midian came from. The Midianites. Do you know where the Midianites came from? That's not fair, you know, because I told you. Midianites. Midianites come from Midian. It's not a place, it's a person. They're descendants of. When Abraham's wife, Sarah, died, Abraham married a new man. I just saw a light bulb come on for somebody else in the back. Abraham married a new woman, and her name was Keturah, and the Bible tells us that she bore a son to Abraham and named him Midian. Also of note, the Midianites would eventually be used by God to oppress his people because they were idolatrous, evil, straying from the word of God people, and he judges them with a relative, the Midianites. We're not told much about what happens. We have this picture, seven daughters come to draw water from their father's flock. What can we understand? If the daughters are drawing water, there's no sons. The Bible's important. If the daughters are drawing water and pasturing the flock, there are no sons because sons would have done this. This is actually quite interesting that Moses encounters this family with seven daughters who are tending to their father's flock because Moses is a third generation removed from Levi, and Levi and all of his brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and all the rest of the twelve were keepers of the flock. Very interesting point to note. Seven daughters come to water the flock of their fathers. It says... 
confusingly, so let's pay attention to the narrative and not insert our own thought. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. So when it says shepherds, like what in the world? They're watering the flock and here comes these shepherds and they're driving them away. Who is Moses saving them from? We're led in the narrative to understand that the shepherds are some kind of idle bad men that come to interrupt the daughters. Now, what better target if you want to steal some sheep or some goats or whatever's in the flock of Ruel? What better target than his seven daughters? Defenseless, helpless. They're leading the flock to water. And all of a sudden, these miscreants see, now we can get those daughters out of the way and take those sheep. They can, maybe they're, maybe they're a, a, a neighboring clan in the tribe of Midian. It says that uh, Ruel was the priest of Midian, actually means not priest as in the sense we would think of worship and service in the temple or whatnot, but priest like prince, like sheik, like leader of a clan. So there's people that don't like him perhaps and they come to take his flock away and it says Moses stood up and saved them, that same spirit in Moses. He sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew and something stirs within him. He sees the Hebrews quarreling and something stirs within him. Now he's just trying to rest as a fugitive on the run and he sees these daughters being harassed by these shepherds, these bad men, and he stands up. The same thing stirs in him, but the Bible says something different than it said before. He saved them and watered the flock. Matthew Henry, my favorite commentary writer, notes, quote, Though bred and learning in that court, yet he knew how to turn his hand to such an office as this when there was occasion. Nor had he learned of the Egyptians to despise shepherds. There's a very beautiful small picture happening here. Remember, it's wording in the Bible is all specific. It all means something. Look what, look what it says, verse 16. Priest of Midian, seven daughters, they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water the flock, their father's flock. Then when Ruel says, why are you home so early? Look what, look what they answer. How is it that you've come home so early? Verse 18, verse 19. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. Back in Genesis chapter 46, it's flown under the radar for many of you. You've read it and thought, hmm, that's interesting. Back in Genesis chapter 46, Jacob is bringing his family into Egypt. And they're trying to figure out where they're going to live. And Joseph says, we're going to get the land of Goshen. I'm going to talk to Pharaoh. I'm going to bring you in. He says, he brings some of his brothers in. And he says, when Pharaoh asks you what you do, tell him that you're keepers of livestock. And Joseph says to his brothers, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. But here's Moses defending these shepherd women. They're tending the flock. They're keeping the sheep. They're getting the water. And here's this Egyptian. What do we understand then of the biblical narrative as it tells us this? Moses, effectively a trained Egyptian, does not recognize what they are. Something stirs and he sees someone needing help. A true Egyptian would have turned the other way and not cared at all because shepherds are an abomination to them. 
a beautiful thought. Though instructed, Acts 7 tells us, Moses is instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians. There is something about him that can, one, set aside his trained position. Can you imagine a prince standing up? He not only saves it, sure, we can imagine a prince saving these women. I'm here to save you, women. I'm a prince, right? right? Every woman in here at one point in your life, you're like, just waiting for a prince. These seven women, their prince shows up and he beats away the bad guys and then he waters the sheep for them. He doesn't just save them. He fills the troughs with water. He brings the sheep back. What does he do? He sets aside his train position. He puts away the prince and helps people in need. What else does he do? He puts away his possible prejudice to come to the aid of people who are in need. He could have just scoffed and turned and gone the other way, but he doesn't. Why? Because just as Moses condescended from his princely status, taking on the form of a slave to save them, Moses condescended from his princely status here, taking on the form of a shepherd to save the powerless. Every glimpse that we get of Moses should be calling us to think of someone else in the Scripture. For his service, he's gladly welcomed into the home of Ruel. He's content, the Bible says, to dwell with, to dwell with them. It says that Ruel gives him his daughter Zipporah. We're not done seeing her. In fact, I don't know how we're going to deal through Exodus chapter 4 because there's stuff going on there that I don't even understand, but we'll get there. He has Zipporah as his wife. She bears a son. They call him Gershom. Interesting, if you look back in Moses' life, there is a Gershon born to Levi, and there is a Gershom N-N, born to Moses. Near similar names. Near similar. Gershom meaning sojourner. He names his son as a tribute to the kindness shown to him in a strange land. Literally has an, if you will, living memorial to the kindness that was shown to him. I'll name him Gershom, for I received kindness. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Next week, we will hear from the Israelites, and at long last in the book of Exodus, we will hear from the Lord God, but for today, in light of what we have seen, to try and help bring some application from this narrative, a little more lecture than preaching, but these questions. Like Moses' parents early in chapter 2, are you living by faith in the fear of the Lord, or are you living faithless in the fear of man? Are you living by faith in the fear of the Lord? Or are you living faithless in the fear of man? Moses' parents had faith. It says by faith because they were not afraid of the king's edict. What were they afraid of? Their God. By faith, they feared the Lord. Are you parenting? Let's get even more uncomfortable. Are you parenting by faith in the fear of the Lord? Or are you parenting faithless in the fear of man? Man doesn't know how to parent your children. Man doesn't know how to help you raise your children. God is the one who has given you the miracle of child life to care for. He is the one you should be turning to. By faith, fearing the Lord, we are to be parenting. Are you standing up for people of a lower class than you? Are you willing to do what is beneath you to help them? 
This is, this is a difficult question to ask in our day and age because there are so many warriors for social justice out there, and that's not what I'm talking about. Perhaps it is what needs to be talked about at certain points of time, but let's consider this. Are you sitting here today with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that at the end of your life you'll be welcomed and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Praise God. You find yourself in some form of living that is better than someone else. Are you stooping to their form of living while not giving into it and sharing with them the good news that has saved you, that God may save them? Do you understand that we as Christians are able to cause our Christianity to become something that we do not share because they don't deserve it, they won't hear it, they don't want it, and the same thing that could have kept Moses from interceding with the slave keeps us from interceding in the lives of people around us who need to hear the truth. Are you living a life that is willing to stand up for a lower class. Ezekiel reminds us that if we see the sword coming and we do not warn, we will suffer a judgment. If you see the sword coming and you warn, listen, the sword is coming on the people who are living and walking in disobedience. The sword is God's judgment and we are given the good news of Jesus Christ that they may believe by faith and escape that judgment. Are you standing up for people of lower class than you? Are you sharing the good news with people that you would not typically associate with? Are you willing to do what is beneath you to help someone? A prince saved sheep and then gave them water. Do you live in light of who you are as a child of God? Drawing more deeply, more importantly, into the heart of Exodus 2. He cast off the Egyptian. Are you living as strangers and exiles in the world? Are you embracing the wealth of Egypt? Or are you refusing to be known as the daughter of, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Have you cast off the treasures of Egypt, treasures of the world, for the greater wealth of the reproach of Christ? Are you viewing the reward that he will give to his people? Lastly, this entire chapter, Exodus chapter 2, this entire chapter should be causing us to think about another deliverer who condescended from his princely status taking on the form of a servant to save the powerless slave. The whole chapter, we get enthralled with Moses, and we're like, when we get into the snakes, when we get into the river, when we get into all the plagues and the Red Sea, we see all of those things and we miss. All of this is pointing to a prince who would come, who would condescend his princely status who would do a job so far below him, so underneath him to save. Jesus Christ left his heavenly throne and was born as a baby. He lived a sinless life. He humbled himself, died a sinner's death as a sinless man, the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, obedient to death on a cross, rose again on the third day, he reigns in heaven now and will return one day for his own. But in a moment, that prince condescended to you to save you. And as we look at Moses, we see how God delivers and redeems and dwells with his people in the fulfillment. Looking back, we're looking back through the cross of Christ and seeing the expectation in Moses come forward to us. Have you?
placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 says that Jesus has been counted of, as worthy of more glory than that of Moses. The account of Moses is encouraging. It's inspiring. It should cause us to have great confidence in the Lord our God, but it should cause us to look at our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you, by faith, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Salvation is simple. We complicate it. God has not. You don't have to raise your hand, stand up, walk an aisle, bend a knee. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The Bible says if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The warning calls all throughout the scripture. If you're hearing right now, if there's a tugging that you've never felt in your heart, in your mind right now, don't turn that off. Lord, I am here and I am listening. I'd love to talk with you more about that. I never make the assumption, even as well as I know some of you, if I don't know your testimony, I never make the assumption that you're sitting here as a saved follower of the Lord Jesus Christ unless you have shared that intimate detail with me. If you have not trusted the Lord by faith, do so today. A prince condescended from his princely status to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, you are good. We thank you for the encouragement that we find from Moses. We thank you for a prince condescending to save slaves, condescending to help the powerless. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus, the prince of peace, the king, condescending to us, being found in appearance as a man, humbling himself to obedience to the point of death on a cross that at the name of Jesus Christ, exalted, every knee will bow. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray for people to bow their knee in this life and not meet with your harsh judgment when this life is over. Father, save. According to your grace, according to your mercy, through faith in Jesus Christ, save the lowly. We praise you for the goodness of your word that reminds us in this moment those who walk in darkness, on them a great light is shown. You have filled the hungry with good things. You've looked upon the estate of the lowly. You gave your son to die for us, a ransom for sinners deserving death, hell-bound and hell-deserving. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you, God. Father, as we worship you, be honored in the heavens, be glorified. Father, as we step into a time of fellowship and sharing a meal with one another, I pray that you would be honored in our time together. Father, I pray that we will see Jesus as we read the scripture and that we will understand and know you are a God who delivers, who redeems, and who dwells with your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.